This is the 25th and last sermon in our series in the book of Hebrews. And this is it. We've, we've made it. And uh, one of my favorite verses in the entire book of Hebrews is in our text this morning. And it's this one. After everything that's been said, 13 theologically dense chapters, the author says, I urge you to bear with my word of exhortation, for in fact, I've written to you quite briefly. I don't know. I'm not sure there's anything quite brief about this letter, but I love that he adds that at the end. Like, I could have said a lot more, but I held back for y'all. Today, we're going to focus quite briefly uh, on the last two verses, uh, verses 20 and 21. The, The letter ends, appropriately so, with a benediction. Benediction literally means well say or to wish well. When someone speaks a benediction, they speak well over a group of people. Uh, But it's not just an opportunity to say some nice things. This isn't a toast. Uh, Instead, when someone benedicts, they speak truth and they speak blessing. The aim is to bless people with truth. When I planned out this series, about a year ago now, I planned so that this passage would land on Pentecost. And as you've heard a few times in the morning, we remember today that God the Father has sent the Spirit into the world to help us grow in the likeness of his Son and become his witnesses in the world. That's what we're remembering today. But we're not just reminiscing about a supernatural event that took place a long ago, but this is our everyday reality. The Lord is here because... His Spirit is with us. And although the Spirit of God is not explicitly mentioned in our passage this morning, this passage beautifully describes how the Spirit of the living God works in and through us. And so if this Spirit of God business is entirely new for you, or whether you want to grow in your understanding of how the Spirit engages in our lives, the end of Hebrews is a great place to begin. So there's one big idea I want to explore this morning, and it's this. Without the Spirit, there is no Christian life. Without the Spirit, there is no Christian life. So if you have a Bible, open it up to Hebrews chapter 13, verse 20. Uh, Once again, I'm going to be using the NIV instead of the ESV, uh, and everything's going to be on the screen behind me. Hebrews chapter 13, beginning in verse 20. Now, may the God of peace who through the blood of the eternal covenant brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, equip you with everything good for doing his will, and may he work in us what is pleasing to him, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Sermon's done. Let's go on. Our cultural moment has been called an anxious age. Our baseline in our cultural moment is anxiety. Uh, We're anxious about an onslaught of problems bigger than we can comprehend. You know, the threat of nuclear war, the rise of radical fundamentalisms, the threat of global warming, the hostile, you know, polarization of politics, social media, and fake news. You know, each day we hear about tragedies that seem to inch closer and closer to home. And even though we live with more abundance and more wealth than the world has ever known, uh, we're overwhelmed by the sheer amount of choice we face each and every single day. Each and every single moment, we face yet one more decision to make. Every moment, there's another message, another request, another notification, another option, and it wears us down. And yet, 
Simultaneously, we're afraid of making a choice because we don't want to miss out. And so then we get anxious that we might not know all the options yet. We have this baseline of anxiety. For those of us who hope to stay in Vancouver, to make this our long-term home, we have anxiety about the housing market. Will you ever be able to have roots here? Will you ever be able to stay? Will you ever be able to have real and lasting relationships with so much transience going around us? Does any of this sound familiar? This is what commentators mean when they describe our current cultural mood as an anxious age. The church on the receiving end of this sermon sent as a letter also lived in an anxious age. They were an illegal religious movement within the Roman Empire. They were a peculiar sect within Judaism and perceived as a threat by the leaders of Judaism in that time because they thought it would rock the stability of Judaism within the empire of Rome. Uh, So the church faced ongoing oppression and injustice and persecution. Followers of Jesus lost employment and homes and freedom. Some lost their lives, all for the sake of their faith. You see, the world around them was unstable. It was shaky. It was dangerous. It was deeply painful. And each and every single day, they had to get up and ask difficult questions about the future, about survival, about what it means to follow Jesus yet again this day. And is the cost still worth it? And so the author writes to them and says, yes, absolutely yes. Wake up and endure and endure and endure and endure again because there is no greater security. There is no greater help. There is no greater prize. There is no greater truth. There's no greater promise than Jesus himself. And so yes, endure even in the midst of all this anxiety. And after this quite brief exhortation, the author speaks these words of benediction to God's people living in an anxious age. He says, now may the God of peace. Now may the God of peace. Peace may be one of the deepest and most sincere human desires. And the antidote to our anxious age is peace. While each differ remarkably, various religions, therapies, and philosophies of life are essentially attempting to try to answer the question, how do we attain peace? How do we attain peace? Theravada Buddhism, for example, encourages the pursuit of the state known as the attainment of cessation. The mind is liquidated. Emotions, positive or negative, are eradicated. Consciousness, thought, and motivation are cast aside. This state, if attained, is complete detachment from experience and from life. It is the non-existence of non-existence. Life is something to be escaped. The Stoic philosophers, they offer a slightly different approach that I think is very current today. They believed a state of mind was achievable where you're undisturbed by your emotions and experiences. The universe can't be controlled, but your reaction to it can. And so peace is found by taking an objective, impersonal view of things. You keep things in perspective. You stay detached. Life isn't to be escaped, but you shouldn't let it evoke anything in you or control you. Humanism, on the other hand, Appeals to the human spirit, right? Our will to do good, our hope that together we can overcome our differences for the sake of the common good, for the sake of global peace. Consumerism, one more purchase is around the corner and that purchase will finally bring you peace. But the way of Jesus, the movement of Christianity, it offers a totally different vision of peace. 
You know, as the author begins this benediction, he draws us into the truth by focusing upon one key characteristic of God. He writes, now may the God of peace. Similarly, Paul, he writes in Philippians, now may the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. See, unlike Buddhism, the way of Jesus affirms this life and all that is experienced, not as something to escape, but something to find God within. Unlike Stoicism, the way of Jesus views our emotions as a necessary part of life. You should feel angry over injustice. You should feel joy over celebration. And these emotions should affect your experience of life. Unlike humanism, the ways of Jesus teach that peace will not be achieved by human effort alone. Unlike uh, consumerism, Jesus doesn't have a cost to the peace he offers. He offers it freely. There's a lasting and deeper peace available because, the author's saying, peace is a quality of God. Peace is a quality of God. It's God's peace that can guard our hearts and our minds in a world around us that's described as an anxious age. So even if the world remains disordered and chaotic, even if we ourselves are anxious, we can have a peace that's greater than ourselves, a peace that Paul says transcends understanding, and yet a peace that we can experience, a very real peace, because God shares himself with us The God of the universe makes himself known to us and abides in us. And so if he is the God of peace and dwells in us, then we can have peace. Now, I want to be clear. If you have an anxiety disorder, I understand right now, like you might be feeling more pressure to fix something that you've not been able to fix. And so please know I'm addressing general anxiety, the sort of worry that every single person on the planet of earth deals with. And so if you have an anxiety disorder, you will surely benefit from professional care and different strategies of dealing with that. But the peace of God is still available, even for you. God can heal miraculously and through many other avenues too. But for all of us, if we find that our peace is easily disrupted, it's likely because we're trying to find peace through our own strength or through our own disciplines or through our own mindsets. We're trying to find peace outside of the God of peace rather than coming to God with our anxieties, coming to God with our worries, coming to God with our hurts, coming to God with our fears and declaring God of peace. Not praying, give me peace, but first declaring you are the God of peace peace. That's where we must start. This is where peace begins, not with us, but in the very nature of God, the God of peace. Because even if the world unravels, friends, even if all the causes for anxiety are justified, if the God of peace is with us, we can have peace indeed. Because it's not a peace then that we're responsible to manufacture. It's a gift to be received, a gift given through the power of his spirit who is always with us. 
And the author of Hebrews, he knows this, he gets this, that the church has no chance of survival or endurance in an anxious age. They can't endure if they're frenzied and worried and frantically trying to make life work by their own power and strength. But part of the reason we can find peace in God because the God of peace is also the God of power. Look at verse 20. Now may the God of peace who through the blood of the eternal covenant brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep. Mao Weidong holds the Guinness Book of... I'm not speaking in tongues. Mao Weidong (laughs) holds the Guinness Book of World Records for sustaining a plank for eight hours and one minute, which is a full eight hours and 45 seconds longer than I can do it. Some people have incredible power, incredible strength, incredible ability to endure, and they fill us with a sense of wonder and awe, and we give them awards and we talk about it. But so much more power is available to us than mere human strength. This is resurrection power we're talking about. The same power that brought Jesus Christ back from the dead is the very power at work in those who follow him and believe in him. The spirit of Jesus Christ himself is alive and can be at work in you. All you have to do is ask. This is resurrection power. The same power, the same spirit. We should never underestimate what God can do in and through us, what God can do In our midst, God can most certainly give us peace because he can do far more than we dare ask or imagine. But did you notice, the author wants to focus in about a characteristic of God that gives us peace. Our Lord Jesus Christ, great shepherd of the sheep. We need someone with power to shepherd our anxieties someone who knows to tend with our souls with strength and gentleness. But the truth is that in our anxieties, in our worries, we don't always look to our great shepherd. We don't always look to the God of peace. We're readily offered false comforts and we readily turn to them to placate our anxiety and we turn to them again and again and again. The French mathematician Blaise Pascal, he wrote this. All man's miseries derived from not being able to sit in a quiet room alone. All man's miseries derived from not being able to sit in a quiet room alone. This was well before the invention of the internet, in case you don't know who Pascal was. Let me ask you something. Have you ever been at your house with the TV on while using your laptop and your phone at the same time? A comedian in an interview with Conan O'Brien ranted about how we use cell phones to stay distracted. And he said we do it because underneath everything, there's that thing, that empty forever, that knowledge that it's all for nothing and you're all alone. Life is tremendously sad just by being in it. And he goes on to talk about how people will risk their lives to text and drive because they can't dare to be alone by themselves in the car, not even for a second. Isn't this what Pascal's talking about? We don't want to be alone with ourselves, let alone with the truth that can creep up with us in that moment, or a doubt. 
And so we invite technology to shepherd us, to comfort our discomfort, to placate our anxiety. We turn on Netflix to numb out. We keep our phones ever by our side so we're endlessly connected. We stay entertained so that we can stay distracted. We stay busy and avoid solitude and quiet. And we might even use good things, good things like exercise and hikes and friends and dinners as a way to avoid our discomfort. So we buy the new outfit, a new gadget, a new frying pan, a sombrero, whatever, and we (laughs) quietly enjoy the temporary satisfaction of something different, something new, something temporarily fulfilling before that feeling fades beyond our grasp. Sometimes we click on the articles with five steps to a better life, or we listen to the TED Talks, and it turns out we're baited easier than we admit into the false promise that there is a quick fix, a single step, that there's just one thing that we're still yet to figure out. And that's why peace seems to evade us. And that one thing is just one more click away. We turn to so many different things because ultimately we long for a power that can shepherd us in our anxieties, a power capable of calming our fears But none of these things that we're turning to are good shepherds, let alone a great shepherd. Our only true comfort is going to be found in the God of peace, the God of resurrection power, and his son Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep. Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep. We have to think of Psalm 23 when we read that. David writes, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For you are with me and your rod and your staff, they comfort me. The valley of the shadow of death is most certainly an anxious This is an image of war. You can be flanked by either side. You have no protection from the back or from the front. And yet David says, as I proceed through this valley of the shadow of death, I will not fear because God is with him. The God of peace, the God who shepherds his soul. Jesus is our great shepherd and he tends to us who live in an anxious age. You see, the Christian life, it's not about our own strength. The Christian life is not about our own confidence. It's not about our willpower. It's not about the skills that we can acquire. This is the greatest distinction of Christianity that sets it apart from every other world religion. It's not about what we can do or accomplish. It is about what God has done for us in his son, Jesus Christ, and what God continues to do for us through the power of his spirit. Our confidence, our trust, our hope is not in ourselves, but in Jesus, the God of the universe, the great shepherd of the sheep. He himself gives us personal attention and engagement. He walks with us, cares for us, guides us, directs us, and neither sleeps nor slumbers in his attention toward us. You can be alone and yet never alone because Christ is our great shepherd.
Finally, the author writes in verse 21, may God equip you with everything good for doing his will and may he work in us what is pleasing to him. May God equip you with everything good for doing his will and may he work in us what is pleasing to him. I love it when Ansley right now says to me, I can do it. My daughter Ansley is about to be five. And it's usually a bit sassy, maybe a little snarky and overconfident. Like, I can do it, you know? And she thinks she can do it without me. And of course, as a good parent, I want her to do a lot of things without me. And I'm really glad she can do a lot of things without me now. I'm glad she can get dressed. I'm glad she can put on shoes. I'm glad she's learning to brush her teeth. I'm glad she's able to swim, but she hasn't been able to do any of those things apart from Julia and I, and mostly Julia, if we're honest, teaching her how to do these things. And we can take that a step further. Everything Julia and I can do is because of those who taught us. And we can press this further still. Language and culture and history and just being born into a social environment shapes and influences you so that you can do the things that you do. You see, we like to think we're autonomous, that we're self-sufficient individuals. We're prone to think that we've made it on our own but we're always building upon what's been passed down to us. Every single person on this planet is indebted to those who came before them. Inescapably so. And if this is true, how much more so is it true of God? When it comes to our spiritual life, it is entirely a gift As the author says, it is God who has equipped us with what we need. And it's Christ who will work in us so we can do what's pleasing to God. And we desperately need God to be at work in us. Because the deeper truth about our anxieties, the deeper truth about this anxious age is that we don't have peace internally, let alone peace in the world, because our minds by nature are hostile toward God. Our minds by nature are hostile toward God. Romans 8, 7, Paul writes, the mind governed by the flesh, that is our sinful nature, the mind governed by our flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. The source of our anxiety is not that we're failing to attain peace. The source of our anxiety in an anxious age is that the collective mind of humanity is hostile towards God. It doesn't want to recognize God. It doesn't want to be inconvenienced by God. It doesn't want to be defined by God's truth. Rather, we want to tell God what is the status quo of cultural acceptance and then have him conform to us. The mind is hostile towards God. But... Paul goes on to write in Ephesians, even when you were dead, even when you were dead in your trespasses and your sins, even when you had a mind hostile to God, God loved you and made you alive. Dead people can't make themselves alive. I don't know if you've noticed that. God summons life into us, life that was never there before. He summons it into us. As the author of Hebrews writes, God has equipped you with everything good 
Throughout Hebrews, everything good is very specific. It refers to God cleansing us from sin, forgiving us through the death of his son so that our sins, do you recall throughout Hebrews, are remembered no more. It refers to how God has taken our hearts of stone and shaken them away to give us hearts of flesh that beat for him, hearts that no longer refuse to do what God says, but gladly follows God. Everything good refers to how God has now given us access into his presence. His throne of judgment is actually a throne of grace that we can draw near to and receive mercy and help in our time of need. Everything good refers to God giving us a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And every single one of these things is a gift. God initiated it. God started it. God offered it. It's all grace. We can't earn it. We don't deserve it. And God lavishes it upon us anyways because he is the God of love who seeks and saves all that is lost. And so knowing that we always need God's empowering help, the author prays, may he work in us what's pleasing to him. May God work in us what's pleasing to him. So often we can think God is out there somewhere. God is so distant. And yet, if you've put your faith in Jesus, God is closer than you can fathom. God's very spirit dwells within us. God is at work in us. God is at work in you, in your very life. And I realize it can be hard to identify exactly where the Holy Spirit dwells in us in the same way that it's hard to identify where our own spirit dwells in us. But the spirit of the living God is alive and well and transforms us sometimes dramatically, often subtly, but always working in us and moving us toward becoming like Jesus. God is at work in you, slowly and patiently changing your thoughts and desires and intentions to align with his ways. So you can live a life that's pleasing to him. But to be clear, God wants to empower you and not overrule you. God wants to empower you and not overrule you. He takes the initiative. But like a good father, he wants you to walk with him. He wants you to be sustained by him. But he also wants you to be growing in maturity as well so that you delight in these ways, that you choose these ways. And so as we seek to live out our faith, as we seek to become more like Jesus, we have to remember that God has already taken the initiative in us if you even desire at all to become like Jesus, that is a gift of God's grace in you. Don't take credit for him. Thank him for it. The Christian life cannot exist without the Spirit of God. It's too hard. The standards are way too high for us. And the entire sermon letter of Hebrews And all of its instructions hinges on this truth that everything that we've been exhorted to do, every challenge that we may face, we can walk in it in a way that is pleasing to God because the God of the universe, that great shepherd, he is with us and he is in us and he will strengthen us so that we can walk in his ways.
Today, we mark this truth. That's what Pentecost is all about. The spirit of the living God, the power of the resurrection is available right now. Not later, not tomorrow, right now. No matter what you've done, no matter how far you've strayed, no matter how arrogant you may be, no matter how much you think you can do it all, if you stop and say, God of peace, I can't do it anymore. I believe in your son. I want to walk with you. Please forgive me and fill me with your spirit. His spirit will fill you and empower you and send your life on a trajectory you could have never fathomed, but it will be good and it will be beautiful and it will be a life full of flourishing beyond your imagination. This is why the last words of this benediction are so appropriate. We can only live lives that are pleasing to God through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen.